Investors Chronicle. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the IC Interviews podcast. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on the Investors Chronicle. And today with me in the studio, I have Gervais Williams. Gervais is a fund manager at Premier Mighton. Not everyone likes the term, but perhaps you could describe him as a kind of veteran of the UK small, micro and mid-cap space. He works, among other things, on some multi-cap UK income funds, which tend to look a bit further down the market cap spectrum in part when they are seeking out some dividends. One of the funds he works on is the Diverse Income Trust. That's a name that has had a rough time as of late, but does sit in the IC's top 50 funds list for 2023. So, Gervais, thanks for coming in. How are you doing? Very well, and thank you very much for having me today. A pleasure, a pleasure. So, as I kind of alluded to, of course, it has been a difficult period for people who delve into small caps and mid caps and things like the A markets in the last year or so. What's your kind of outlook as we're kind of moving through 2024? And what are your kind of key, I suppose, kind of bull and bear cases for delving further down that spectrum? Yes, I mean, in capital terms, the fund hasn't made as much money as you might have expected in the last year or two. But actually, under the bonnet, when you look at the income and the income growth of the fund, it's continuing to come through very strongly. And I think that's the dichotomy. People look at valuations and they go up and down, you know, they can change every five minutes. But actually, the great advantage of income, particularly if you get sustained and growing income over time, is actually that's the real finishing post for investors. Uh, and ultimately, we think capital markets follow ultimately the dividend flows. Dividend flows are coming through strongly, generally from corporates. Uh, we've seen plenty of uh, large companies growing their dividends, but lots of small companies growing their dividends too. We haven't had a recession. So actually, the income and the income growth is going very nicely. Ultimately, we think there's going to be a pattern change going forward to 2024. Uh, we think actually the mainstream mega cap uh, bounce, which we've seen, which has been terrific in the US, mm. the magnificent seven, as they're called, the largest seven, actually rose, according to Bloomberg, 107% last year. Goodness gracious. Many small quoted companies on the AIMLA market were actually down last year. Now, don't get me wrong, they were drawing their income, they were doing just fine, but there's been a, a sort of a, an anti-small cap effect, really, in the last, say, 12, 24 months. And we think that will normalise, as markets normalise, uh, those companies generating good and growing income uh, will come through. Uh, specifically, the opportunity for the UK market, which is undervalued, to outperform as well. Mm. Uh, we are tremendously upbeat about the potential, not for, so much for the global economy, but most particularly for some of the assets in the portfolio. I suppose, you know, you mentioned we've had the kind of price falls in those parts of the markets. And perhaps there's a risk there that we get some kind of optically high dividends and value traps, that kind of thing. What kind of areas, if we're talking about things like small caps, are you seeing as a good source of dividend growth? And are there any areas where you're actually being a bit more cautious, perhaps less convinced of, of the appeal there? Yeah, I mean, broadly, we don't know what the future is going to bring, but Interest rates have been high for a long time. Global growth is likely to slow. Even if we cut interest rates, they might have a lagged effect on economic growth. So, so we're not very interested in cyclically uh, organised businesses. Mm. But we're much more interested in businesses with sustained income, growing income. Now, the area which is probably very counterintuitive, which we're tremendously upbeat about, is actually capital-intensive businesses. So the nature of it is when you get... Uh, obviously, the cost of capital going up and the cost mm. of interest rates go up. Then if you are uh, uh, trying to build a, a big asset, say you're a property company, you know, a, a property you may have built five years ago would have cost 100 million. Now, we don't know, but it could cost 140 million, right? So as a starting point, you're not going to build that property until you get 40% more rent. 
And then on top of that, obviously you've got to generate enough cash to pay for the interest charges, to pay for the cap cost of capital. So you probably need actually rents to be up 60%. So we're in this really strange position where actually established assets, capital intensive assets, there's going to be no more building of those assets. And I'm not just talking about buildings. I'm talking about, you know, energy businesses, mining companies, capital intensive financials, uh, some of the defence companies. All of these areas are not going to actually produce more assets until actually their, their profitability goes up extremely hard. So, so going forward, we're tremendously upbeat about the opportunity for companies in capital intensive industries, not just to generate profit, but actually generate a lot more profit, even for marginal increases in demand than most people think. And that's really the UK market, actually. UK market's superbly positioned to outperform. Are there any kind of specific stocks that have stood out on that front yet? Well, I mean, to, to be fair, we've seen in the last two years, we saw as soon as, you know, obviously the invasion of Ukraine happened, that obviously most of the uh, assets in our portfolio fell, uh, share prices went down. Uh, other than energy companies, my goodness, you know, they were just very uncorrelated. They've generated lots of profit. Of course, people worried about, you know, the, the windfall taxes and all that kind of thing. But generally, uh, that just demonstrates nobody's going to put a lot more money into a lot of these energy assets until the price of energy is a lot higher. You know, risk-reward ratio is, 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 is... Don't get me wrong, I think we've got to think about changing, uh, you know, climate change, reducing carbon. I think that's all going to come. I just think the transition from carbon-based energy into windmills and the such like is going to be a, a slow affair. And I think we, we're assuming it's going to be much more simplistic than it is. Are you still then relatively kind of upbeat on the kind of energy and resources names? I mean, if you look through your sort of top 20 holdings, there's, you know, a good smattering of different kind of energy plays there from... I don't know, Pan-African resources to, you know, a few others. Yeah. Are you still relatively bullish or I suppose people do worry about kind of what's going on, for example, with commodity prices and, you know, the economic squeeze still kind of causing pressure there, that kind of thing. Yes, I mean, obviously, the, the, the story of 2023 was that we didn't get the global slowdown we all mm. expected. Don't get me wrong, China didn't recover as much as we expected. Yeah. But meanwhile, the US grew accelerated in growth. Uh, you know, Europe, whilst it's slow, didn't actually go into recession in any meaningful way. So coming back to it, actually, it, the assumptions are, yes, we will get a slowdown. Yes, that will affect commodity prices. They do kind of swing you know, around a long, blue long way. But ultimately, there's not much capital going into these assets. And therefore, there will be shortages developing. And it won't be necessarily all, all, all mines or all energy companies. But some of them won't just generate profits. They'll get, generate super normal profits. Uh, and most particularly, their valuations are, in many cases, extraordinarily low at the moment. So the risk reward ratio is some of the most attractive I've seen in my career. It'd be good to, I suppose, stay with some of those energy and resources names. One prominent one that is very topical for various reasons is Savannah Energy. It might be good just to briefly go through what's been happening there because that is quite a convoluted story and the shares are currently suspended. Yes, I mean, they're, they're into a tra transaction and obviously that will conclude shortly. But most particularly, the great advantage of some of these companies which are less well followed is that they can sometimes step in and take a risk which uh, larger companies feel uncomfortable with. So in this case, it's in Nigeria. Don't get me wrong, that's a risk. But uh, nearly all of its revenues are actually credit guaranteed. So from that point of view, yes, it is, it's got to take or pay contracts. It's supplying uh, gas and oil into the, into the, into the Nigerian economy and it, they're short of energy supply. So that's, that's very strong. But most particularly, it means that actually they generate disproportionate cash. And as I say, although you're taking a, a country risk in Nigeria, having a revenue stream which is uh, credit guaranteed 
isn't, isn't half wrong. So, so coming back to it, within the context of the portfolio, and don't get me wrong, you know, that's just one holding amongst other energy holdings, then you can take those risks. Now, you know, it could be that something goes horribly wrong in, in, in Nigeria, and, and that would be a hit for the portfolio. But it would only be a small hit. You know, there's, there's, there's over 100 other holdings, including many energy holdings, which mean that if something goes wrong in Nigeria, hopefully it won't go wrong in all the other holdings we've, we've got risk in. And by taking that risk, not only do you get a lower entry price, you get a better return, you get more yield, more yield growth, uh, then that's the, the opportunity. The, the reason it's suspended is because actually they're talking to South Sudan at the moment. Now, you know, that's another risk. But if they get a credit guaranteed a stream of revenues there, clearly a, a major's coming out. These are good quality assets generating surplus cash. Then maybe it'll be a great deal. Maybe they won't get the deal. In a way, I don't mind either way. The truth is the risk reward ratio on that particular company appears very attractive. But in the context of the portfolio, we diversify the stock-specific risk by having numerous other holdings. Just on Savannah, though, has it been, is it one that's been sort of like written down within the portfolio? Um, you know, people have kind of thought about what it's worth now. And I suppose also there are concerns that it might come off a bit more once it kind of returns to the market. But yeah, has there, has there had to be a write-down? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, 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 an external process to me, um, mm. obviously within the group, where all of the assets are, you know, every time we get an announcement, we have a look and see whether we should be changing valuations. So because it's head of this transaction hasn't got a, a, a current share price, we, we do write it down. Um, in that case, I think we have written it down a little bit. All prices come down, you know, from that point of view um, to reflect that. But, but, but the main thing is that it's a small part of the portfolio. It might move up or down a little tiny bit. In itself, the capital value isn't going to be the main driver. As I say, come back to the income the income growth, the potential for substantial income growth. The company, the company is, is not paying an income, but we, we expect it to pay a very good income in the next year or so. So from that point of view, you know, you're going from no income to plenty of income, from cash generation. OK, they may or may not do this deal in South Sudan. It's, you know, another country risk, don't get me wrong. But, but, you know, within the context of that individual holding, that's significant within the context of the portfolio. It's very small. And mm. um, sticking with, I suppose, kind of resources plays, it's interesting to see Rio Tinto in, in the portfolio, obviously a kind of, I suppose, an income favourite for many different kind of funds. But there's, again, there's quite a lot going on there. You know, it has some kind of major projects on the go. It's more generally kind of shifting the business in certain ways. And some do worry that there's, I suppose, a kind of prospect of lower dividends to come in time. What's your kind of general take there? What's your kind of rationale for kind of sticking with Rio? So Rio's, I mean, the great advantage of Rio, of course, is it's a global company. It has global quality assets, has a number of these assets, some in Guinea, some in Mongolia. Don't get me wrong, country risk again, Mongolian assets, mm. credit guaranteed again, just as it happens, right? So <laughs> let's not forget about that. But what's interesting is the share price has done really well. So in contrast to something like Savannah or some of the other energy companies, which have probably been a bit weak, you know, they've done really well. Uh, as it happens at the beginning of this year, and this is just so happens, we'd actually halved the holding at the very start of this year, uh, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because actually we don't need that much stock-specific risk on that company, you know, and therefore, you know, iron ore price has been excellent. That's come up dramatically well in terms of share prices. It's not on an expensive PE, and its dividend might go down because it pays, uh, you know, a percentage of earnings. So as earnings go up and down, uh, the dividends go up and down. But most particularly, not only can we take profits in that, but we can reinvest in many of these overlooked AIM-listed companies, which are generating income, where standing on ridiculously low valuations, and in many cases don't have the same kind of volatility you might have with some of the assets and, and some of the commodity prices in the Rio. Mm. So, yeah, let's let's turn more broadly, I suppose, to kind of portfolio activity. You know, lots of interesting dividends, interesting valuations on show at the minute. Um, what have you been doing in the funds? 
So that there's two things we've been doing. The first is that interest rates probably will come down faster than expected. That's not because, actually, I think inflation will be benign. It may well be benign. But that's not in itself interesting. The reason why you cut interest rates aggressively, and I think they may be cut more aggressively than perhaps the market thinks, is because you get an economic slowdown. As I said, we've had interest rates at very elevated levels now for 18 months, most particularly uh, sort of last six and 12 months with interest rates uh, standing at, you know, 5% or so. So we do think that will have a delayed effect. That will lead to economic slowdown. We think it could be a more abrupt slowdown than most people think. So we think interest rates could come down. Well, on that basis, we might as well skew a little bit more towards capital intensive assets. The portfolio is added to certain capital intensive assets. We've bought a house builder, uh, Taylor Wimpy. It's not in itself a very exciting growth stock at the moment, but valuations were low a couple of months ago. Uh, we've always got involved in more um, sort of real estate. You know, about 5% of the portfolio is now in real estate. So we've got British Land and Land Securities, as well as other companies like Conigara in the portfolio. So from that point of view, again, th those assets have been there. And most particularly, we've also added to holdings which are coming through in terms of overlooked companies. That would include a lot of AIM companies. So in the last six months, uh, for example, U Group has come into the portfolio. Now, you may not know U Group. You know, if you go back, perhaps at the end of 2020, it had a market cap of 16 million. 16, one six million, not 60, 16 million. According to the Librium forecast for the current year end, i.e. December 2023, it'll have 55 million of cash in the portfolio, no debt, right? And if they're right about the future, I think hopefully it'll do better, but hopefully it won't be disappointing anyway. They'll have 80 million at the end of next year, uh, the year we just started, and 108 million the following year. Now, I'll just remind you, it was, it was 18 million market cap, literally. So the valuations can be just wrong and very wrong. So as it comes into dividends, we've had that in our small cap portfolios, but as it comes into dividends, we can start to put it into the diverse income, multi-cap income fund. So from that point of view, yes, we've bought a holding. Yes, the share price has already done well. Market cap is currently 216 million. And the great advantage of that isn't just that it's 200 million, but of course, there's quite a lot of professional fund managers who say, actually, you know what? I hadn't seen this company. It's 200 million market cap. It's looking beautiful. It's generating lots more cash. It happens to be a utility. So it competes with things like Centrico, British Gas. So particularly in the corporate sector. So it delivers corporate energy uh, to, you know, all sorts of corporates. It's, it's more efficient. It's customer service. I think it's better. But most particularly, it's only got one or two percent market share. And we think it could take plenty of market share from here. Uh, and so it's invested over many years. It's coming into the cash surplus. Those are the companies we really look for. Companies which are finishing a period of investment, generating abnormal cash surpluses where they can not just grow dividends, but grow dividends disproportionately. And if we can get involved in many of those companies, as well as the mainstream companies like Rio's, then we think one, you get a, a more income growth over time. But better still, you actually get the opportunity to grow even when the global economy might go into recession. Let's just make the assumption that there is a recession coming, not just in the UK, but in the US and Europe and other places. Then actually, it could be that many of these smaller quoted companies don't just survive, but they thrive as some of their competition fall over and they make disproportionate return. As I say, we are tremendously upbeat about the valuations being low of these assets, but the prospects being a lot better than most people think. Mm, what what are the kind of main, I suppose, threats or kind of headwinds you are considering at the minute? I suppose one big one probably is recession, but what are the other kind of things that you kind of have in your minds at the minute when you're, I suppose, kicking the tyres on your, your holdings? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, I mean, I think if we if we go back to the start of 2023, most of us were thinking there was going to be a recession, and there wasn't, actually. So what's been interesting isn't the fact that there, that there wasn't a recession, but most particularly that's allowed a lot of investors to concentrate on the big companies, which tend to be pretty good when the world economy is growing. When the world economy isn't growing, if you're large, you do run into problems, because if you've got a large market position and you lose demand, obviously sales, 
then it's hard to make up for those sales by moving faster into enough into into other markets. So so large companies can't really dodge the bullets. Um, so we would argue if there is a recession, say in 2024, then actually we think many large companies come under margin pressure. There may be some demand uh, coming off. You may find actually the earnings aren't met, and, and and some companies get into financial difficulties, and some cut dividends, and all that kind of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong; it's not easy for small caps either. You know, they've got to deal with the same thing, but they're more agile. And our friends at you, obviously, it's an easy example. But they, you know, they're taking market share hand over fist at the moment, uh, and maybe they take a little less demand, or maybe they take a bit more. You know, who's to say? But the truth is that they've got a prospect which isn't uh, unaffected by the economic conditions. But actually, uh, they can continue to grow even in spite of global recession, if there is one. And that is tremendously exciting. So we ex- expect the pattern of small company effect, the long-term effect, by, by where the smaller the company, the better the performance. So Saab came right. And for a fund like the Diverse Income Trust, which has a universe of companies further away from the FTSE 100, FTSE 250, into the small companies, aimlessly companies, particularly those with good and growing income, as I say, you could find that they don't just survive, they actually thrive. Companies may f- go bust in the next 12 months, and some of their competitors may go bust. And if you've got a strong market, position if you've got strong finances you can expand into that marketplace but better still you can find that companies which have gone bust they may have been uh, invalid in terms of you know they've gone bust but they may be viable businesses with just too much debt and you can go to the receiver and buy them for as little as a pound you know like we saw with with silicon valley bank you know hsbc bought for, bought it for a pound right i think that added a billion ultimately to the value of hsbc now don't get me wrong you know every billion helps in in, in hsbc's case but if you're a small company and you add a value, you, you add 200 million or 100 million on your acquisition, all bit you pay a pound, you've got to put some working capital in alongside it. The, the cash payback can have a much bigger effect. And so when you go back to the 70s, yes, the mainstream UK market outperformed. That was all related really to cash surplus, uh, capital intensive assets outperforming. UK market was one of the best in the world. But the best performing part of the best performing market in the world was small caps. They were acquiring those assets from the receiver and making disproportionate returns. I think that's what is up ahead. As I say, I'm tremendously upbeat at the moment. Mm. Although if you are, I suppose if you're kind of looking out to not get stuck with those, I suppose, struggling companies, if we are in a, if we are still in a challenging period, what kind of metrics do you tend to keep an eye on? I mean, you mentioned debt, but are there, are there certain kind of red flags that you would look out for? Yes, I mean, I think what I'm really fearful about is actually pressure on margins. Companies are making near record margins. That's related to how much debt. When you've got debt going to the economy at a rapid rate, and clearly with the government's taking an awful lot of debt in the last three years, you know, so profit margins across the Western world are near record levels, right? Um, and we can all guess if we do get into a period where interest rates, they come down, but there's a recession on, and ultimately governments get a bit tight on cash because they've got to pay more on their historic debt, and there's been unemployment pay to be paid, and you've still got to do for the NHS and all the rest of it. So you could run out of cash. So you could find that really, it, it, capital becomes quite tight. Uh, quoted companies have the advantage, but most particularly companies which actually have the cash generation can continue to expand when companies with debt, they don't just have to retrench, but actually they've got the danger that they can't repay the debt on the due date and they go into a solvency. So, so I think there's going to be this kind of period where actually a lot of the mainstream companies, you know, the, the zombies and such like, like that, mm. you know, actually are finally going to fall over. You've got to say, well, why haven't they fallen over the last 10 and 20 years? <laughs> well, because cash has been near free and there's plenty of equity around and it's all, everyone's fine. But I think we're going to get into this period where actually the, the winners win disproportionately, but the losers lose disproportionately. So coming back to your question, mm-hmm. debt. 
we've got to be really careful about debt, but also we've got to be so careful about profit margins. How can you hold on to profit margins when all your customers become very price sensitive and they say, I know, you, you know you'd love to charge this price, but quite honestly, I can buy it around the corner for half price. And the way that that's really you hold on to your customers isn't about just the quality of your investment, but most particularly customer service. One of the key criteria, companies for our portfolio, tell us about your customer service. And lots of companies, you know, they don't have much in their presentation about it. It's not much in their annual reports. But actually, when we get into it, we say, not just what is your customer service, but how do you measure it? You know, and what were the metrics last month? And how does that compare during COVID and all the rest of it? We are absolutely convinced that if you deliver not good, but outstanding levels of customer service, it doesn't mean you're immune for the markets out there and the potential recession, but you're in a much stronger position. And what's interesting is that's an agenda which they're not covering with most other fund managers. We think we're not quite alone, but we're near alone in talking about this. And we think it's going to give us our companies much greater chance of holding on to sales. You know, I talked about you group, you know, I think they deliver outstanding service, right? Uh, and that's why they're taking market share. And that's why some of their competitors will, will, will struggle a bit. And whilst they can continue to take market share, even if customs become more price sensitive. And beyond you group, are there any particular names that have kind of stood out on that front? Well, I think I think one company which is in the portfolio, which which we tremendously upbeat about, is is Gallifer Tri. It's construction business. The great advantage of construction businesses is that what's what's called long cycle. What do I mean by that? You know, they've got orders for the next two or three years for many of their uh, contracts, and they've got framework agreements lasting five and ten years going forward. So whether we get a recession or not, they've got the prospect of, of, of continuing to have sales. Very important at the top line. But the reason why I bring them up is because when it comes to actually delivering customer service, it's not just about the ability to do customer. You don't want to get into a scrape with a poor contract. You know, if you've mispriced the contract and you're just not getting the, the revenues, then you try and cut corners to try and, you know, make sure you don't lose too much money. Uh, and they've got, a, a, I'm very impressed, Bill Hocking, the, 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 the chief exec, he's brilliant at, at diversifying attention to the right kind of risk right the way across the company. And so they're very, very careful not to get into contracts which could just turn into those contracts where you don't just lose money, but you lose an awful lot of money. <laughs> and so the downside, you know, the joke about contracting businesses, they're always contracting, right? So, so specifically, uh, this is a company where it isn't just uh, doing well, we think it's going to take market share. And again, completely valuation, completely overlooking. It's got more cash, including the assets in terms of, uh, it, it's got some PPP assets in, in a private partnerships. In its, when you include all of those, it's market cap, and it's market cap, you know, it's a decent size here. This isn't just a sort of 50 million pound company. You know, it's 240 million market cap. But most particularly, it's got more cash, surplus cash in its portfolio, in, in, in its business, than it has its market cap. You just think, that's just ridiculous. And they, you know, they, they've just agreed a, a dispute historically where, they, they suddenly get a lot more cash in. They've bought another acquisition. Again, from low valuation uh, improves their market position. Risk reward ratio, again, outstanding service, but more attention to detail on risk. Very, very impressive. Speaking of cash piles, I suppose, uh, it'd be interesting to kind of get your thoughts on capital allocation, because I suppose we've seen in the last year, we've seen lots of kind of big calls from companies on, uh, for example, within your portfolios, we've seen, you know, plenty of share buybacks and within plenty of funds, to be honest. What's your kind of general view, you know, when you're thinking about what you would like to see companies doing in, in a scenario like this? Yes, I mean, I think interesting. I mean, obviously, valuations are low. And when valuations are low, you can either put capital into the business and, and build the asset base and, and make more money in the future, or you can buy back your shares. And that's what's going on. I always feel it's a bit disappointing to buy back your shares. Don't get me wrong. I can see that there's commercial value and you know, share prices. There's fewer shares and the earnings are spread over fewer shares and you get more uplift and all that kind of stuff. But I think it's just such a disappointment because ultimately you know, your asset base 
diminishes. You know, the, 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 the invested capital the value of it decays over time and you're not putting capital in fast enough. And more particularly when you've got companies which are getting into financial difficulty or assets where you can buy them from the receiver, etc. I would much rather the businesses actually didn't buy back their shares. I'd much rather they continue to invest in their business so that come this long-term period where we may get scarce capital, where it's quite difficult to borrow, or if you can borrow, it's very expensive, then those companies don't just have assets, but they have assets when other companies can't afford to put them in or they're more expensive because of inflation and all that kind of stuff. So so most particularly, we generally ask companies not to buy back shares if you can avoid it. Uh, mm. if, you, if you've got surplus cash and if you can continue to invest in the business uh, at a rapid rate and generate surplus cash, then uh, start to pay dividends, but pay ordinary dividends, not special dividends. And, and specifically, th we think good and growing income is going to become mm. the key determinant of, of whether you get a good valuation in the market in the future. And if you go back to the 70s and early 80s, that's how it used to be. So basically, we've got into this period where it's all been driven by share prices and, and sort of rapidity of growth and, 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 and excitement about technology and all that rest of it, which is fine. There's a place for that in portfolios. But most particularly, we think that going forward, cash and cash compounding if the markets don't go up, say valuations come under pressure, profit margins come under pressure, or it's offset to some degree by inflation. If we just assume for, for working purposes that global markets don't go up for 10 years, just to make it easy for me, right? <laughs> uh, then suddenly cash compounding becomes the absolute main game in town. Mm. We, as I say, income, the UK's position, capital intensive assets, risk reward ratio, all of these things point to green lights. We think the UK market is superbly positioned. Uh, they don't just get cost of capital uh, uh, coming uh, down going forward. Uh, they, they don't just find that institutional investors come in, but they can actually acquire assets at distressed valuations and make even more money. Uh, the risk reward ratio, as I say, is particularly attractive for income assets, uh, income generating assets going forward. On the income front, an interesting balancing acts for managers like yourself is, I suppose, kind of dividend growth versus current dividend yields. You know, do you go for your kind of punchy yields or do you go for some companies perhaps have a lower dividend, but they have that prospect to kind of um, push it up over time? How do you kind of handle that mixture? I, I don't see a, a dichotomy or, or tension, to be honest, because actually, Yes, we want to generate income and we've got to maintain the income and keep it going. But most particularly, we generate income growth. That's the cornerstone of the diverse income strategy. Uh, and so, yes, if there are companies which are flat dividends, albeit they're the high yields, to be honest, we're just not interested. We're just not interested. The danger is if you get a bit of disappointment, it's not so much that you don't just get your income income cut. Sometimes you have an emergency rights issue to keep going. So, so these are things which just aren't interesting to us. Risk rule. There's so many companies, as I say, with assets already invested, capital-intensive industries particularly, where you can actually generate good income. And if cost of capital remains relatively high, and don't get me wrong, interest rates will come down, but we think banks will start to charge higher and higher uh, sort of fees on top because of as companies go bust, they've got to allow for the fact that there will be some people who won't pay. So going back, we think actually the cost of capital is going to remain relatively high, cost of interest uh, payments by corporates will remain relatively high. And at those stage, as I say, the winners win disproportionately. Companies with institutional capital can actually draw upon capital at a time when others are, are starved of capital. I'm talking about private businesses particularly. Uh, and you can make disproportionate returns on that capital. So coming back to it, we don't see any tension really between... Mm. Uh, income growth and, and, and income generating assets. As I was saying, as long as you're generating what we consider to be abnormally large amounts of cash, 
in the next few years and particularly growing amounts of, of surplus cash, then you've got so many opportunities either to continue to pay growing dividends, to acquire assets, to actually uh, you know, continue to move into vacated markets. The opportunity is just pretty exciting, really. And are there any sectors that admit you're just simply not interested in that just you've mentioned what you are into? But... I, mean, I mean, I think the portfolio is very widely spread. As I say, it tends to have 120, 130 holdings. But, but so it's very wide, wide ranging. And there's immature and mature. There's local and international. There's businesses which are large and small and all this kind of stuff. But the main thing is we're probably more cautious about a lot of uh, service industries. You know, a lot of service industries have actually pushed inflation up over recent years. The cost of your lawyer, the cost of your accountant, all these kind of things have gone up quite a long way. And what we're saying is actually we think there'll be more margin pressure in some of those areas. And actually a lot of the traded goods goods areas, a lot of the capital intensive industries, we think there will actually be more opportunity to move prices because there just won't be much capacity coming into these areas. So so we think, if anything, we're quite cautious, we're quite careful about some of the service industries. Interesting. Turning to some other sectors, what's your kind of take now on the insurers? I mean, they, they have some interesting yields, but they've also had some I suppose some weakness in recent times. One interesting argument is perhaps they've proved a bit more kind of interest rate sensitive than some might have expected in the last year. Yeah, I mean, if you look at life companies, for example, life insurance companies, I mean, what's interesting between them and, say, fund management groups, fund management groups have had capital outflows and people bought index funds and all the rest of it. But when you look at the life insurance companies, of course, you know, they tend to get fees in from pensions, as you get. And pensions have go up with, 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 with income. So income has been going up. Wages have been going up. So in terms of your saving and my saving, in terms of my uh, pensions plans, they're going up very nicely. So actually, I think people are a little bit too cautious about some of these life insurance companies. They were yielding 10% some of them recently you know their share price has gone up to be fair in the last few months but but most particularly why wouldn't you by buying a 10% yield capital intensive industry of course but most particularly if they're well organized they should be able to get the benefits of those extra flows uh, operational efficiency to actually not just to pay dividends but grow their dividends and many of these companies have been growing their dividends league in general and some of these others been growing their dividends perfectly happily so so first of all Absolutely very happy from that point of view. And then you look, look at car insurance companies. To be fair, kind of a, it's, it's a dowdy sector. People don't regard the car insurance as so interesting. But they've had all sorts of competitive changes coming through, partly from the FCA and, and regulation. But, it, you know, so the winners, again, we won disproportionately. Uh, we've had, obviously... Used car prices have risen during the COVID period. So whilst you may have you know, got more fees in, in terms of, of, of charging for car insurance, actually you've had to pay a lot more out. So actually many of these companies haven't done that well in terms of P&L over the COVID period. But most particularly, they're now entering a period where actually they're able to charge a bit more. Uh, and perhaps the claims, because used car prices going down, starts to drop away. Again, we think car insurance comes is quite an interesting sector. And you have to buy car insurance, whether you like it or not. If you've got a car, it's a, a legal obligation to buy car insurance. So, so again, it's under pressure that FCA have announced a, a, another look at the, the sector uh, recently in the Monopoly State Commission. But most particularly, ultimately, we think that they are commercial operations and those which are the best operators are delivering real value to customers. Mm. Just turning to another sector, what's your kind of case on the supermarkets? I, mean, I notice you've kind of held things like Sainsbury's and so on. But, you know, there are concerns about kind of competitive pressures, thin margins, that kind of thing. Where Where is the optimism? Well, the optimism is, first of all, um, if we do get into a period where there is unemployment, if there is an economic slowdown, if there is a recession in the UK... Uh, then obviously our unemployment goes up. People are a little, a little less secure about you know going out for expensive meals. Meals have got a lot more expensive. As I don't need to tell you that. So so now we're seeing actually that some people are, are moving up to the top end, you know, in, in, to the to the to high premium uh, supermarket uh, products. And we've seen that with the recent trading statements, both from Tesco's and Sainsbury's. So ultimately, the great advantage of this 
sector is that we can be very confident about demand, right? Demand isn't going to go away, uh, and that's a lovely cornerstone if we do go into recession. The second feature is six, 12 months ago, most investors were quite cautious about the sector. It was all too boring. There were lots of other things going on. What's been interesting about the last six months is actually how much their share prices have arisen. And, and they've both done very well from that point of view, and that's been good news. But most particularly, coming back to the cornerstone of the portfolio, it's about generating surplus cash. They generate surplus cash. And therefore, they're able to pay dividends, but grow their dividends. As sales go up with inflation, then obviously their sales go up, their profits go up. So ultimately, they can generate more dividend growth than people might have expected. Don't get me wrong, they've got challenges, you know, with the 10% increase in the living wage, for example, announced by the Chancellor recently in the autumn statement. You know, they've got cost pressures coming through. We saw that with Sainsbury's uh, with their recent announcement. And I think that's great, actually, because I think they need to actually, uh, you know, pay their staff well to retain their staff. What a nightmare it's going to be for sort of nursing home operators. What a nightmare it's going to be for certain restaurant groups and things to actually compete with many of the supermarkets which can afford to pay decent wages when actually a lot of these other companies are really struggling to get staff. I think the competitive tension is going to be very interesting. So ultimately, I think the win will win disproportionately, coming back to that core theme. And I think investors were just too cautious six and 12 months ago. Mm. And, and just turning to, I suppose, one one last name, uh, it's interesting to see you have BT Group. That's, I suppose, another one that's kind of a subject of uh, a lengthy debate given, you know, there are some interesting traits, but also it's facing plenty of competition. There's things like the kind of pension deficit not really going away. Yep. Again, what's the kind of case? So the nature of telecoms generally is is up to now, you know, that the, the, you can produce more and more uh, volume down a certain fibre or whatever. Or, or, and so basically competition has been very severe. And as more and more competition has gone in, you know, then a lot of the, the, the charges we pay for telecom services, data services and things have been generally, uh, you know, get more and more for your same money or that kind of stuff. The, the reason why we think that's fundamentally changed is once you get fibre to the door, you're not going to change. You're not going to go back to copper and all the rest of it. Once you've got fibre at the door, you just want, you know, outstanding levels of service. And as BT rolls out, you know, fibre to the door, then basically there's nobody else going to come and put another fibre to that door. It's ridiculously expensive and you won't get the commercial payback. So actually suddenly the customer service, uh, which I think has been improving in BT, it needed to, mind you, but I think it has been improving. So ultimately, suddenly you've got a captive customer and if you, as long as you deliver good service or outstanding service, you, you hold on to the customer and actually you can push prices up as well. So we think it's a completely different dynamic in the telecoms industry as a result of fibre. The second feature, which is something which comes after three or five years, is actually as you retire the copper, one, uh, reliability improves, actually, because copper is always having little problems here and there. So actually, your, your charges for maintenance go down. But most particularly, we kind of jokingly in our business talk about BT as being a kind of hidden copper mine, right? They've got 300,000 <laughs> tonnes of copper in all sorts of telephone exchanges and all the other stuff, right? So if copper is going to be in shortage because of, uh, you know, obviously moving into electric vehicles and the rest of it, then ultimately we think BT has another uplift related to actually just selling all the copper and, of course, then building flats in all of those uh, uh, telecom uh, uh, exchanges and stuff. So, so coming back to it, we think it's actually got lots of things which are overlooked. Yes, it's got the pension deficit as well. But we think that people are just too uh, cautious about the prospects and the opportunity for it to generate cash, but not disproportionate cash going forward, is in our view good, and that will drive good and growing income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Plenty of cases, perhaps, where people are still overlooking some interesting UK plays. Well, lots of interesting stuff to unpack there, but I'm afraid that is all we have time for. So I would simply uh, thank you, Gervais, for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, as always, to our excellent producer, Maddie Apthorpe, and thank you to you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. Take care.